Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five. And it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Mutig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. End today. End today. We have Kristen Kish. We are so excited to have Kristen on. And I know this is not a um, traditional literary author, but she is the author of the cookbook, Kristen Kish Cooking. And she's just one of our favorite people. And she wears her hat backwards. So that is, it's, that's pretty much why you want to tune in to this episode and this interview, because she's going to answer the very pressing question of when it's a hat day and when it's a not hat. Is it a straight bill hat? hat Do you break it? Do you bend it? Mm, mm. All of the rules for hat wearing. But before we get to Kristen's episode where we're going to talk about and her. before we talk about what Kate wants to talk about, mm. I just want to tease a little something, something okay. for the patrons of our show. And if you're like, what do you mean a patron of the show? How can I be a patron of the show? Well, that's funny because I can tell you. It turns out there's this website called patreon.com um, and then forward slash free cookies. That's not the website. That's just us. But if you go to that website, you can become a patron of our show. And the reason why you want to be a patron of the show, besides the fact that you love listening to us and you love our producer, Lindsay Collins, and you want her to get paid is <laughs> that we are getting awesome extra content. And Kristen has promised me it's not up yet, but it's going to be that we are going to do a FaceTime and I'm going to record it. And she's going to teach me how to make a proper French omelet. And it turns out that already happened in quarantine, but we didn't have Patreon yet. So, you know, there's that. But if you want to learn from one of the best chefs in the world, how to make a proper French omelet, you got to become a patron of the show. You would have been absolutely dismayed by what happened when I went to visit my best friend, Shauna. Shauna's actually been on free cookies. So she calls out to us and to her two small children, do you guys want some scrambled eggs? Okay. And I'm all, sure, I'll have a scrambled egg. I'm getting nervous. And then I, I watch her, and I mean, maybe this is a fantastic um, method, but I watched her crack about eight eggs into a pan and scramble them in the pan. Um, and I was like, wait, you didn't scramble those in a bowl beforehand? And she was like, bitch, come on. I got two kids. <laughs> and I was like, that is some next level. I got level. two kids and eight eggs. <laughs> that is next level laziness in my mind. I don't know, Chris, Kristen, if you are listening to this, <laughs> is it okay to scramble eggs in the pan? I'm going to go ahead and say if you have two kids, it's okay to do whatever you want, but proper if, form. Considering we are talking with Kristen Kish today, and if we want to talk about form and and how long you should be whipping your egg before you actually <laughs> put it in the pan, and when you should salt it, and when you should not salt it, there's a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that you shouldn't even call that scrambled eggs. What Shauna did, right? I mean, at the end of the day, Sloppily did they come eggs? out scrambled? I mean, it scrambles my head thinking about it, so I think it counts. Well, I don't know. I mean, she put cheese in them, and that just fixed everything to begin with. So, and she cooked them in butter. So I feel like I, I it's butter and cheese egg, really. But, <laughs> okay. That's like a Dr. Seuss book. Uh, butter and, butter cheese and cheeses egg. and eggs. Oh my. Um, okay. So this is, I don't think we've ever done this before, but we are, we're, we are connecting future episodes to current episodes. Yes. It's happening. So Catherine and I read this book, Night Theater, and 
Next week, we are going to have the author of Night Theater on the show. Vikram Parlkar. Thank you, Catherine. You got Nailed you, it. And so he, in, Vikram, in his book, Night Theater, he has this one line that just really kind of struck me. And it, well, let me just share with it and then, and then we can take it from there. So he, he has this line. It's, re- it, it's not even one of those like crazy poetic lines. It just really got me thinking. It, it basically just says, he begged along the way, doesn't even matter the context, but he begged along the way for food to keep his soul tied to his body. And I'm not suggesting that that sentence should blow your mind, but the idea within it, as I started thinking about this idea that food keeps our soul tied to our body, really, it, it really struck me because as someone who at various points in my life, I've, I've tried to eat as little as I possibly could for some, you know, physical aesthetic benefit and how prevalent that idea remains in all of society specifically. And I know we have a lot of listeners in that quote unquote health and wellness world. It really got me, it it sort of reframed how I think about food and Mm -hmm. yes, we talk about it nourishing the body and we talk about it, you know, being this communal affair, but this idea that food keeps your soul tied to your body I really, it really resonated with me as it's very literal in some senses, like but literally just, food will keep your soul tied to your body. Cause if you don't eat food, you will die and your soul will detach from your body. But I also just got this imagery in my head as you were saying that, because th- there is obviously there's this concept, especially when it comes to women, like women should disappear and that makes them beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. Like the skinnier you get, the more beautiful you are. And that's because like you take up less space, which Obviously, we need to flip that on its head because women, humans, like take up as much space, be loud, be yourself. But this image of food tethering you to your soul, like like I had this image of someone drinking a green juice as their soul was separating from their body and floating away into the ether because there's nothing left because there's fixation on becoming as small and tiny as possible. And you are inevitably losing part of yourself when you do that. Yes, because you ultimately you've rearranged in your mind to ascribe to this idea that food is solely a direct link to the body. Mm-hmm. Food is solely about shaping a body, whether, you know, it's for about you, an aesthetic instead of a nourishing component. Yeah. And I think in even reading what people say when they talk about how much they think about whether they're allowed to eat something or whether their psyches will react if they, you know, eat something too late or something that seems heavier than it should. Oftentimes there is no direct link to what the soul, what role the soul has to play in that. Mm-hmm. Well, and when we had uh, Mega Majumdar on the author of The Burning, she brought this up and we were you know, very animatedly nodding our heads in agreement where she said, especially within, you know, 2020 and quarantine and the age of COVID, how eating comfort food is one of the only nourishing things we can do for our soul at this point. And, and you'll see it. I've seen a bunch of people posting pictures of themselves on social media with weight gain, you know, being like, I normally want to post this photo, but quarantine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I would not be surprised if most people, a lot of people who have been lucky enough to keep food on their plate, obviously, uh, may have put on weight in this year because of we're searching for that level of comfort. And for the first time ever, you know, as I will look down at my tummy, I have lovingly nicknamed my lower belly Pepe Le Pooch. Um, and... I, I gave my lower belly Pepe Le Pooch as a way to empower myself instead of looking at my pooch and thinking harmful thoughts. I'm like, I'm going to name it think, after a cartoon character. But don't you think even calling it a pooch is doing work no, in your but, head? Well, I, I, fair enough. But to me, like naming it after a cute cartoon character makes me think happy thoughts when I say that name instead of the negative connotations that normally come along with pooch. But if it's Pepe Le Pooch, all of a sudden it's cute. And recently, um, this concept... You know, I do feel very grateful, even though 2020 does for us personally feel like treading water today so we can tread more water tomorrow. Literally, as in like on Tuesday, we are treading water to get to Wednesday where we will tread tread more more water. water. But, you know, the takeaway being at least our heads are above water. Yeah. And we're not drowning. So now there's this concept of when I look at this extra weight on my body that's happened because like I do indulge in 
more, I, I don't believe in bad foods. I don't believe in guilt, but I, I have definitely indulged in more things that maybe I wouldn't do on a regular basis. But now when I look at Pepe, I feel, um, gratitude and gratitude that my body is still strong, that it's still healthy, that it's without disease and that it is taking the physical form that it needs to be in for the year of 2020. And it's one of the first times, you know, you read a lot of like, think good things about yourself. And if you just look at yourself and you love yourself, everything will go away, which is great in theory, but absolutely shit when it comes to application. And I do feel that this year has finally made me look at any changes in my body that I would normally see as negative as like, I have my health. I have this body. I love you. And that's why I name it after a little cartoon character. (laughs) (laughs) One one more thought before we get... It's like, I don't know how to follow up. To, to, before we get to Kristen, I'm just trying to think of a different cartoon character, but like I, I just couldn't right there. I, I guess Pepe's you could call so it cute, Donald Pepe. Duck, but that doesn't oh, work do as much. Oh, do your Donald Duck voice. I feel like I've done it like several times on this again. podcast. Do this it, would be, I think, the third or say fourth. Say Pepe Le Pooch and your Donald Duck. <laughs> okay. One last, one last thought before we get to Kristen. Take me seriously. Take me, I'm a serious person. Okay. Super serious. So serious. I I think we would be remiss to have this discussion about. Snot just came out of my nose. About (laughs) food keeping the soul tied to the body without mentioning just soul food, right? Like the actual subgenre of food, soul food. And I think that oftentimes there's a correlation between soul food, meaning like heavier, right? right? Like soul food equals heavier food. Literally in the black community, right? soul, Soul food is often like biscuits and certain like collard greens. Yeah. And, and certain food that is about comfort. Yeah. And I, I think we've kind of touched on the idea of soul food doesn't ha- it, when I'm, when I'm having this conversation, I'm not thinking, Oh, food that's good for the soul equals like bad it, for the body. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that has, that idea has gotten a little bit out of control too. Is like, Oh, food that feeds your soul must be bad for your body. Like yes. where have all of these connections come from? I'm not actually asking to answer that question, but like, that's a confusing thing to think about. If you think, oh, well, this food is comfort and it's good for my soul. Therefore it must be bad for my body. And to have to be processing one of those things every time you eat, right? Like, oh, I'm going to eat this. It's good for my body. must be bad for my soul. I'm going to eat this. It's bad. It's good for my soul, but it must be bad for my body. But that's a whole lot for all of us humans to be constantly thinking about every time we have to eat some fucking food. And your journey has been really interesting around this because often my journey, your journey, um, with Pepe, (laughs) you know, the following day after I'll cook us a dinner, the next day you'll be like, was that healthy? I don't even know what I mean by that. I'm more like, did you cook it with olive oil? Because I'm going to assume that's healthy. Exactly. But I do think that you've altered a lot with that too, because I think originally when you would ask me after we'd eat something, if it was healthy, you were talking like caloric intake and and fat. And and I, I don't hear you asking me that as much because you seem to be more into the place of like, did it make me happy? Did it fill, fill my soul? Not necessarily. And my body is a bonus, but did it fill me in a, a emotionally fulfilling kind of way? Right. But so, so you can see during that conversation that I still have those things to tied my tied together in my mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why it's good to talk about it. Anyway, let's all keep our souls attached to our bodies and to our food. Yes, the food will help our soul stay with our body. My soul is directly tethered to a burger. <laughs> a veggie burger. That's true. I am a vegetarian. Should we bring Kristen on? Yes. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Kristen Kish is a Korean-American chef best known for winning season 10 of Top Chef. She was formerly chef de cuisine at Menton in the Fort Point neighborhood of Boston. She is also a host of a TV show called 36 Hours. She also has some of the best tattoos I have ever seen in my life is engaged to Bianca. And as soon as quarantine is over and it's safe to travel, we should all meet up at Arlo Gray, her restaurant in Austin, Texas. And you can cook from her book, Kristen Kish Cooking. All right, Kristen, what's up? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I feel like we've had a lot more interaction over the time of like this quarantine period. So it's been really kind of nice I know. to develop a friendship. I, I know. I feel <laughs> close to you now. Um, for, yes. for everyone listening, and I'm I'm going to put the pressure on you because I'm going to say this on air. I'm, I'm hoping to... Okay, so a couple months ago, Kristen offered to teach me how to make a French omelet, <laughs> which, yes, you should all be freaking jealous. Because I, I think... I don't know if I saw you post about an omelet or I was talking about it. 
but you're like, yo, I've got all this time. Why don't you just, we'll FaceTime and I'll teach you how to make an omelet. And I was just like, okay, Kristen Kish is going to teach me how to make an omelet. No big deal. Kristen, after this, she messaged Meryl Streep and asked for an acting lesson. So she just figured she'd use this quarantine. I love it. Oh God. So I'm hoping maybe I can get you to do that one more time before you go to LA so we can share it with the patrons of our show because it is a nifty little trick. And I got to say, you obviously made it easy. You're a professional. Um, I've had like 50, 50% outcome with my omelet. Like sometimes I kill it and other times I get a little emotional when it doesn't turn out the way I <laughs> want it to be. It, it, it's an emotional time. And if it's not perfect, it's definitely not edible. Like in yes. my brain. So I'm like, wait a minute. No, there's a crack. So we can't, we can't do this. But I mean, listen, it is normal because we, I mean, it was on our, it is on our breakfast menu for Arlo Gray in Austin. And so Every time it wasn't perfect, we threw it out. And I am also guilty of not being able to nail it every single time. So it takes practice. And it depends, like, how many other things you have going on, you know, if you're like... So it's okay to be... Wait, you can't be a train wreck and come to the stove and expect to make a good omelet. Do you mean things going on in the kitchen or things going on emotionally? (laughs) Both. (laughs) Equally. (laughs) If your head is not in it, you can't do it. (laughs) So is this like... um, Do you think... being a former basketball player is executing an omelet perfectly akin to making a layup. Like I'm going to make the layup 99 times out of a hundred, or is it more like a free throw where it's like, if you're a good shooter, you're like 85%. What, what is that like for you making an omelet? You know, I think when you first start, it's definitely like free throw 80% land, but eventually you get to a place and you find the rhythm. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, the more busy you are during service and the more omelets you have, the more rhythm you can get into. And so therefore those layups will be nailed 95% of the time. That's interesting because I feel like the only time a professional blows a layup, it's usually a dunk and it's usually when they get fancy with it. Mm, Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you start overthinking it and not, you don't let your like muscle memory and instinct kick in. That's when all things like it all goes to shit Mm -hmm. basically. So, as I mean, I, I want to throw all these compliments at you, but I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but you're, you're <laughs> such a phenomenal chef. And the, I feel like, you, you know, you, anytime, actually <laughs> when we were interviewing Alison Roman, I used you as the example of like, this is my top chef. Like, this is <laughs> like, are you a Kristen Kish level or are you, I'm not, I'm not, don't I'm even not name use, anybody. I'm not gonna, no, I'm not going to name, name a low one. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> so, uh, my question is, you know, at your, your level, how often, like when you're cooking Arlo Gray or coming up with something new and fabulous, do you still get nervous? Do you like, or if you have people coming to your restaurant that you want to, you know, like if Kate and I came to your restaurant, would you, you want to impress like, oh, us? Shit, obviously. I'm a little nervous. Or would you be like, yes. I got this. I just 100%. got this. No, I mean, here's the thing, because food is so subjective, it doesn't matter if I technically execute it like with 110 percent precision uh, most general public really doesn't care they want it to taste good right and when someone says it tastes good the other person next to them could say that it doesn't taste good so it's just it's so all over the place and technique and precision and perfection in my brain does not always equate to um that for the other person so every single time especially oh my god when i see people and i know the food's going out like my stomach still kind of like turns a little bit when we do food show for a new dish or we're rolling out another new seasonal menu or something to our front of the house staff and to the kitchen. I get really self-conscious about what do they think? Because if they don't think it's great, then how are they going to sell it and convey that to our guests? So um, the first line of defense of people to impress are those who work at Arlo Gray. (laughs) See, I, what do you look for when you, I mean, if you're, if, if we're taking this whole visual to the end of it, the food goes out, if you care this much, right? I mean, I'm sure you're very busy and so you can't follow the food all the way and then watch their table for 10 minutes, but maybe let's say you could, like, what is it them saying something to the person next to them? Is it them like is it trying to share in their a eye? bite? Like take us through the visual of the, of the perfect moment. 
Well, so I've worked in several open kitchens and one of them, which was 10 people literally sitting in front of me and I was cooking it start to finish, plating it, doing dishes at the same time and basically hosting a dinner party every night. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then at Monton, which is like the super fancy fine dining Relais Chateau property um, that I ran for about a year, um, I would go into the dining room, but no one could see me. And I wasn't really, honestly, I wasn't looking to see if like they were like, I was trying to read their lips of saying, oh, this is great, or this is shit, I don't know. I was watching in the interactions, because for me, the interaction of people with one another while they're eating the food that I'm serving them, or the interaction with the server or whoever else, that is a larger moment to storytell um, than it is anything. And for a lot of my career, I watched people eat to understand how they ate, so I understood how to plate things. So I'm really interested in understanding oh. the nuances of a diner Ooh. because here's the thing. As my job as a chef, right, I obviously want to serve you a great plate of food. However, if I can take it one step further and say, okay, well, on average, the majority of people eat the European way. So their fork is in their left hand. Um, and typically-ish, um, you're starting around at six o'clock on your plate and you kind of go in for that first bite. Like it's just by nature. Really? Um, yeah. Oh. So setting up. So that was that was in my unofficial um, research of watching people eat in a very non creepy way. But I, I would try <laughs> to learn those little things. But now at Arlo Gray, because I have the opportunity sometimes to like go out and, you know, chat with people or ask them how their meal was. Every time I ask them how their meal was, I always don't believe when they're like, it was amazing. Because I was like, what do you got? What else? What are, are they? Right. Right. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? So. It's about looking at the plates coming back. It's getting feedback from the servers. It's getting feedback from your cooks um, and kind of taking it from there. Wait, I love the way that you study how people eat. I've never heard someone say that. And that's so smart because I, you know, when you go to, we are huge foodies and, and I talk about this all the time, but my, my day revolves around my dinner. And if mm -hmm. I don't get the dinner that I want, I become a very unpleasant human to be around. And, <laughs> um, and you know, when I'm cooking, I, I do, even if it's just me and Kate, like I still want the food to be pretty. Like it does because you eat with your eyes first and then you eat your food, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing, we make a lot of bowls, like where there's a ton of flavors. There's normally like six or seven components and it's probably not how everybody likes to cook, but I love trying to hit like all the different flavor profiles. Mm -hmm. And if I'm trying to make it look pretty, then that creates its own problem because like you said, okay, if I'm going to start at six o'clock on my plate with my fork, but like the beans are at three o'clock and then mm. I've got the sauce at 11 o'clock and then I've got the grain, you know, but so technically they should probably already be all mixed up together, but then it's just like this goopy blob of bullness, which, hey, is delicious and it's fine. So the, here's the thing about how people eat, right? And so... And I'll give you a little bit of a, like a trick for the bowls or whatever. Yes, but please. <laughs> if we think about like hot dogs, right, we typically eat, we all take that first bite roughly in the same area. It's not like we like chop down right in the center. Same <laughs> that would with, be like, so donuts, creepy. Right? Well, you right? see the, the photo of Justin Bieber eating the burrito from the middle, but oh it wasn't God, really did. Bieber. I, did. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I have to redo all my research. Yeah. But, um, but there, there is a traditional way of where you start to eat something in general. And so like things like the bowls where you want things to be really beautiful. And um, I don't disagree. You know, I like the idea of clumping all the different accoutrements on top so you can see them. They're all distinct colors and textures that are contrasting against one another. But the really the goal is, is again, no matter where you go in, if you went in at six o'clock, say there were radishes and roasted mushrooms in that bite. Hmm. But underneath in that bowl, whether it be a grain bowl or rice bowl or whatever, needs to be seasoned because no matter... The toppings, if those are all well-seasoned, you're going to go in for that. You're going to get that topping. But what's underneath is already beautifully seasoned. So you don't have to mix it all together. You just need to make sure that the bulk and 90% of that bite, which is underneath all the pretty stuff, mm -hmm. is ready to go. That's about yeah. Oh, yes. Um, so from a... Okay, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question. Okay, so in, in writing, because that's the thing I know best, there's mm. small little tricks that people gave me along the way that may singularly like, you know, for one example, an editor I had was like, 
you never want to have a dangling modifier, right? It doesn't really matter mm-hmm. what it is, but it's the singular thing that might show up in one in every 15 sentences. But she was like, but if you learn that you can never have one of those and every time you read the sentence, you check for it, you're also, your brain's also going to just check for the overall strength of the sentence. Mm-hmm. And so once I learned, I was like, okay, I'm never going to have a dangling modifier. All of a sudden I started to make sure that verbs were always near nouns and all of that. Is there... <laughs> Is there one equivalent that you can think of in w- along your path of learning? It doesn't have to be one specifically where like someone was teaching you and was like, here's a trick and it just strengthened your overall game back in, back when you were first learning. Yeah. So one of my, my very first like true, true mentors. So Barbara Lynch, she's this amazing uh, fucking badass woman. Yeah. So she, she always told me, um, Kristen, don't ever put pasta on a plate. And I was like, okay well, why not? (laughs) You know, what's the point? And I thought it was like this aesthetic thing or whatever else. And she said, Kristen, if you think about it, pasta is one of those things that it's good when it's hot. And if it is not hot, then it starts to congeal. Different things start to set. All sauces begin to like form a little layer of like skin or whatever it may be. She said, if you contain it all in a bowl, how it's meant to be, it'll preserve how it gets to the guest. And so I guess like it's that little thing of saying, okay, well, Choosing your right vessel mm-hmm. will inevitably convey your outcome better. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the way you play it, it's how you, where you put it, where you decide to put that food or that noun or that verb or whatever it may be in order for your audience to understand it. Right. So, so in that way, the, that lesson wasn't just relevant to you when it came to pasta. All of a sudden you were like, okay, mm-hmm. everything I make, I have to consider yes. this larger end goal. There is a purpose. Right. And here's the thing, if, if 50% of people may or may not even recognize why I'm doing what I'm doing, but I do. And so therefore, if there is feedback that's not so colorful or whatever it may be, I, I also know that I also tried hard enough to actually get it there. And I cared enough in order to attempt to get it there. So then it's like, okay, well, then it's not saying that I don't take any of the blame anymore. I'm saying I did the you best. You did your best. It. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, and it's, I love that you used pasta or Barbara used pasta as an example, because even if you go down to the shape of different kinds of pastas, mm-hmm. it's the same concept, right? Like mm-hmm. a noodle versus a penne is going to take completely different to a type of sauce and or protein because of the way that it holds the sauce and that it 100%. Like dances through it. I'm, I'm getting excited. You guys, I'm, I know, talking about, <laughs> I'm dancing pasta. in my seat. So I know true. lights my wife on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in your cookbook, Kristen Kish cooking, which is absolutely gorgeous. And it's the thing that I love about your book, just from an aesthetic standpoint is that the, um, the glossy cover that goes mm. on it mm. is you, which I, I can, I think I can say this in front of my wife, you were gorgeous. And so that's really Thank nice you. to have. Um, but then if you take the glossy cover off, mm. it's like this whole new layer to the book. And it's this like, is it, is the word embossed? kind of it's this yeah it's this embossed cover of this fish and it is absolutely stunning and then of course you open the book and all of your recipes you can tell everything that you're saying that you've put all this time and effort into precisely how everything is and yet if we go back to season 10 of top chef when you won i mean you said that it was the um the approach to how you cooked your mushrooms that ultimately won them over, which is not like some super fancy technique, but just it's, it seems like, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's more of the care of like how you sweat the mushrooms and when you let them sit right. and then to brown them. And I loved that because, I mean, I love all the fancy techniques, but there is something it's to like be attainable. Said. Yes, you yeah. know, for something that at home, like I want to cook like Kristen Kish, and so I just need to learn how to brown my mushrooms properly. And it's I one small <laughs> thing that anyone could do, as opposed to like a, a full dish, right? Is that kind of what? Yeah, yeah. I just it, it gives mm-hmm. you such a beautiful accessibility that I don't think a lot of chefs of your caliber um, have, or honestly, I don't gather that they want to be very accessible if I'm being completely honest. Well, you know, that was an interesting thing. Like right when I started the book, cause the book took about three years from, um, proposal to publication. And within that three years, like the, the shifting and my mindset of what it meant to have a book and to share a book changed, changed drastically because I changed drastically over the course of that time. And, you know, when we first started, I wanted like this coffee table cookbook, like all the ones that I grew up being inspired by. I was like, this is it, but that's such a small market. And so it's funny that you brought up the jacket versus what's underneath. 
is that we were talking about the cover and my first thing is like, I don't want a jacket. I want just a clean cover. I don't want my face on it. This is what it is. I need the fish underneath. Mm-hmm. And my publisher this was like, listen, we get where you're coming from, but we also recommend you putting your face on it because you need to like, you need a warmth to bring people in. And right. I was like, okay, well, listen, I understand. I, I get it all. I understand. Um, but as we were moving through the book, I realized the approachability factor would be coming from explaining one, where the point of inspiration was, which is typically my childhood and my upbringing. And two is bringing it all the way back down to the basics. Cause it can look, the book looks beautiful and in some ways intimidating, but if you start to really dig in there, you're going to realize it's just, it's just cooking. Mm-hmm. You just have to do it well. Um, and like things like the mushroom, it's because I grew up with my mom. I hated it. I used to, I was a very, very dramatic child. Some would argue that I still am, but <laughs> up, my bedroom was upstairs and I would shut my door and put clothes underneath. So like the wafting smell from the kitchen of sauteing mushrooms, i.e. basically boiling in its own liquid because we wouldn't double cook them. Um, that smell, like, I can't stand it to this day. So um, but you stuffed clothes <laughs> Wait, you shut your door. That's so funny. Cause I thought you were going to say, so, so nobody could hear what you were doing inside, right, and but you no. hated the oh, smell no. that much. I hated <laughs> it. You're like putting I mean, caulking again. on the side of the door. <laughs> Very dramatic, but like, you know, some would argue that I would, you know, my mom would be like, Kristen, stop gagging. You're overreacting. And I'm like, no, I'm really not. It was such a horrendous smell and I hate it. And I don't like it to this day, but it's, it's those moments that are like, okay, well, I don't remember watching someone double cook mushrooms. I don't remember anyone teaching me how to do it properly, but I remember that I didn't like the outcome of what I grew up seeing and eating from my mom. So, so, fix, so you got to fix what you don't like. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Write the book that you want. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so the, the childhood upbringing, like the inspiration and also just the, the changing what, we were we were talking to someone um, for, for the podcast, and and she was talking to us about the inspiration for her book was like going through her old emails and finding like these these this slew of emails that she wrote when she was eighteen to like who was then the love of her life. So, mm-hmm. so the the question for you is like what what do you now who you are now have in common with the high school version of you? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are two very wildly different people. However, the underlying characteristics that I carry, that I had then, that I continue to have now, is what allowed me to heal and differentiate myself within this industry um, and really kind of find peace and calm within myself. And because who I was as this high school kid who really kind of knew a little bit about cooking. Like I loved it. It was so great, but I hadn't really ventured into the idea of doing it for my life. Um, because I was scared to try anything new. I was really nervous to make any changes. I hated change. Um, I was very, very self-conscious and I didn't travel a lot. So I didn't feel worthy of having the knowledge and I didn't have self awareness to understand what my story of food is. Now, those things that I still that I still carry, that I, they, those characteristics do not leave me. I now just am so aware of what it looks like when they decide to show up. Then I'm like, fuck you, see you later. And then I start <laughs> going the other way. And I, and I try to find that, like, that, that push and that uncomfort. You know, we hear it all, 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 the, all the time that so much is found within the, the style of discomfort and what that means. Um, and so I am those things. I recognize them. And it actually allows me to um, pivot in a more efficient way than I was ever able to before. And speaking of your childhood, I actually have a personal family question for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my niece and my nephew are both adopted and they're both Korean. And my, my nephew is really struggling with his Korean heritage right now. Mm-hmm. He's, he's about 11. And... It's it's just been such a, a struggle because, you know, I mean, I don't I don't know what the experience of being adopted is like, and he's, you know, he he loves Taylor Swift, and I think he's just very in love with this kind of um, 
you know, white bread American Mm. style right now. And it's really frustrating. And then his sister is, um, you know, we actually are thinking of eventually having a baby and we, Mm -hmm. we have some sperm on us right now. And it's actually a Korean donor and Mm -hmm. our niece is super fired up about that. And so excited. She, she also thinks that sex is like totally icky and gross. And she's, (laughs) she's got a lot of commentary around that part. Um, (laughs) but you know, she's like, she doesn't even want us to to do that. She wants us to straight up adopt and she wants it to be a Korean baby. And then, um, my nephew on the other hand, just like does not want to identify it with it at all. It's really heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff going on to, to help him. But I just wanted to know with your upbringing, you know, if, if you, did, did you relate to that feeling ever or was, I don't know, I'm like basically yeah. asking what you was for your a experience? session? Like, yeah. A hundred percent. Here's like, okay, so I was, I was adopted at four months old and I was raised in Michigan in a white, a very white suburb, but I did go to school with people that looked like me, that looked different from me, that looked different from my parents. So mm-hmm. it, the diversity within my school system was, was really fantastic. Um, what I... I guess it wasn't really until much later on. So at like eight, eight, 16, I think it was 16. I was granted, I guess, permission to read my papers from Korea and all that stuff. Oh, okay. um, so I read it or I waited. I actually waited a little bit of time. And then eventually I reached out and asked for them. Um, so read all that stuff was like, yes, I'm going to go to Korea. I want to find my birth mom. I want to like do all this stuff, but I'm, a teenager of like, I just was up for any adventure really. And I was like, Ooh, this kind of sounds fun. But what it really was is that I was trying so hard just in life to fit in and to be perfect and to convey that I'm like this all American dream, I guess, um, that I just started doing all the things that I thought I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I identified with being adopted far more than I, I could identify with being Korean. Um, Probably because I know what it looks like to be adopted. I see that I look different. I understand what it means. And Korean culture wasn't really big, period. So, you know, I think it's taken so many different shapes and stories throughout the years. Um, I will say who I am now, um, I do have a hard time identifying with it, not in a detrimental way, but in a way that I'm able to talk about it and say that it is kind of hard for me. Um it doesn't, I guess it doesn't shape my thinking or how I decide to move forward in life. Um, but it does definitely feed into my story of self-worth, um, of saying, I am not worthy of finding it. I am not worthy of knowing this information, whatever else. And that's, that's a bigger issue that I, that I think we all can carry sometimes. So, um, it's part of the story. It's part of like, I guess the quote issues and the things that I work, I work on every day. Um, it's a, it's a part of it. It is. I don't know if it's necessarily the main contributing factor to a lot of a lot of the things that I work on. Yeah. I did this thing when I first started working for ESPN, having played women's college basketball and, and been a female athlete, where mm-hmm. when I got to ESPN, I, for the first couple of years, I did not in any way want to write stories about female athletes in women's sports right in the beginning. Because I was like... Mm. No, I don't. I just don't want to be pigeonholed. I don't want to make my whole career around this experience. And I was like, and it's more mainstream if I write a profile of LeBron James and if I talk mm-hmm. about men's sports. And it took me a while to realize that the the thing that like I I knew the best and the thing where I really had a voice was actually women's sports and female athletes. But I was running right. away from it for so long because I wanted to be like considered more quote unquote mainstream. Do you, do you relate to that concept? Well, I think here's the thing is that for, for by human nature, we like what makes us feel safe and comfortable and what makes us feel safe and comfortable is like, um, you know, trying to fit in of whatever the, the, the media wants us to be or whoever we think we are supposed to be of things that we were instilled, or I guess the things that we saw that taught us that that was how it's supposed to be. But in reality, where the power is and where all the knowledge is held, um, come to find out, <laughs> is at 36 years old, I'm finally understanding, is that it's it's oftentimes more powerful and we have the purpose and the worth to talk about the things that we that 
we do know a lot about, but that we, again, don't have all the answers for. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to have all the answers to talk about something or write about something. Um, And it's about, um, you know, I think I'm learning on, I'm learning to share my opinion a little bit more um, without fear of, of judgment or retaliation or, you know, whatever the case may be. So um, talking about it from our own perspectives and from our own stories and from our own thoughts and opinions um, is a scary place to go because it's very vulnerable, but uh, I'm learning that that's the only real way, I guess, to to talk about things. And I mean, I know it's not a cultural thing, but as part of the LGBTQ family, you have an amazing platform and voice that you're using and you have a, a lovely fiance, Bianca. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and which brings me to my next question. I would love to hear about, you know, if you want to share anything about yeah. wedding plans or Bianca or yeah. anything like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would love to hear that. But I, I know yeah. that you turned me on to the, the cookbook um, or bake. What is a book when it's not cooking, but it's about baking? Is that a baking? baking. Uh, it's a cookbook? Baking. Bake book. Cook, cook bake book. <laughs> cook, cook, a cookbook with an emphasis in baking. Right. Um, but you turned me on to Sweet Laurel, which is the, yeah. the Los Angeles um, two women, I believe, who, who yeah. own it. And it's all grain-free, primarily dairy-free. And you kind of joked with me when you were telling me about it. You're like, this is so not my style. You're like, this, yeah. is, this is not my approach of cook baking at all. And I kind of gathered that that was Bianca's influence? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So, I mean, Bianca has just been the everything in my life. The the person that um, kind of shone a light on all the things that who I am and the things that I do that aren't necessarily like, quote, positive. Like, you know, like, mm-hmm. here's the thing. Like, when I, when typically when I would get grumpier things would happen or whatever else a lot of people in my life are just like cool like whatever but she's like okay we're gonna stop here assess what are you doing where is it coming from and why are you taking out on me and I'm like oh shit so it's like (laughs) in in all aspects of my life she is she has made me more aware of what it means to be healthy and take care of myself both emotionally physically um and mentally so the whole eating thing I I eat whatever I want. I ate whatever I want. Typically really garbage foods, a really unhealthy lifestyle, cigarettes and Red Bull and chicken fingers and all that stuff for, I don't know, the majority of my life. And so when she came into my life, um, she let me get away with it for a long time because we weren't dating. We were just colleagues and working together and eventually friends. And eventually things came along and I will never forget. The biggest thing that she gave me was, I guess, the, the idea that it was time to quit smoking. And so she literally, she came back. She, no, she was in Australia and I was in Austin working and she was like, you know what? I would really like you around just a little bit longer. And I was Mm. like, okay. And no one's ever said that to me. Honestly, no one has ever said it to me in that way. Mm. was like, okay, well you need to take care of yourself. Um, and literally she got landed back from Australia and that was my deal that the second she lands back in Austin, um, I will finish my last cigarette and I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> I kind of still, I kind of still miss it, um, but it's been about a year and a half. So, and I, and I feel better. I just have so much more clarity in life. And so it really kind of stems from there and, um, kind of explains to you who she is for me, which is just this, this mirror of what it means to be better and um she allows me to have that space and she allows herself to give it to me and she allows me to give it back to her so uh it really is and I'm sure you you guys both can relate is that when you look back at all the relationships that you've had whether it be friendships or romantic relationships whatever it might be and when you find your people whether it be your friends or a romantic partner when you find it it brings calm and then it just stops being so difficult. And that's what it is. I absolutely agree. I mean, the, that's the, the lack of drama and not to say that it's the lack of conflict, you know, Correct. but Correct. I, I think like what you said that Bianca does that when you're having that crabby moment, instead of just letting you have your crabby moment is having the level of partnership to help identify mm-hmm. the root of what might be causing disease or 
mm-hmm. or conflict instead of just going in the other room and bubble wrapping yourself until the storm passes. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I did for so long. Like, and I also came from a place, I will fully admit that I have, and I have had it worse and I think I'm getting better at it, but this idea of abandonment, right. And I think mm. it comes from my, my very first four months of life. Sure. And so typically whenever there's like conflict, there's whatever, I'm the one to like go right in your face and I'm like, and I, I just, it's frantic. Right. And so everything, it would always go back and forth in like these frantic conversations, um, you know, with other people in my life. And I just, it was just exhausting. It was absolutely exhausting. Um, and I think it's, I, it's one of those things that you can't really explain when you, when you just feel content in all the right ways. Do you, it's really, it's, it's amazing. It's something I haven't had in a long time. And I wonder too, because from my experience of friends and people I've dated who are in the food and Bev world, it is, it's weird because it's such a magical world to me from an outsider, but it's also mm-hmm. so incredibly toxic and, mm-hmm. um, lots of alcohol, lots of drugs, lots of cigarettes, lots of insane mm-hmm. hours, um, lots of yelling, lots of ego, lots of ego, you <laughs> know, basically I, yeah. Kristen, I've yeah. just watched burnt and that's my whole, <laughs> I got it. Okay. okay. That's, that's what I think. <laughs> I, I dated a chef in LA and you know, I would go to the restaurant yeah. and they would just yell at their kitchen. Mm. And when, and I saw the, the stress that it caused. And when I asked like, you know, do you have to yell at them? Because maybe it would be, well, I mean, I was trying, probably trying to pull a Bianca, right? Where I'm like, maybe, <laughs> maybe if you didn't yell at them, maybe. they would work better and respect yeah. you. Yeah. But their response was just like, no, it's the only way shit gets done. It is mm. the only way shit gets done in a kitchen. You have to be that way, which I just could not, I didn't understand. And I still don't fully understand, but I don't know. Well, yeah, it's, it is, we, we grew up in like the world of obviously, well, you have certain television cooking shows and you have like the Bourdain era, which is, you know, hundred percent his story. And that's, that's how kitchens for a long time were run. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly there are kitchens like that to this day, but I think that, I think I've, I was also really fortunate to, to be able to accept jobs and take jobs and be hired for jobs that weren't as toxic as what I used to read about and see. And so, you know, certainly there were definitely struggles and, you know, stress and long hours, but I'm also coming from a place of, I also had all that when I was in school in Chicago and I drank and I did drugs and I dealt with a whole slew of issues that was really unhealthy. Um, And so when I came out of that period of time and transitioned in professional work life of wanting to feel perfect and wanting to do a great job, that I was able to let that stuff go because that would inhibit me from being, quote, perfect or aiming to be perfect. So I I aligned myself as best as I could with kitchens that um, weren't heavily into that, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, you know, and through trial and error and certainly periods of restaurants that definitely were not healthy, uh, I came out of it just knowing exactly what I wanted to do in my own kitchen. And I 1000% have lost it. I have 1000% yelled when a raw burger came up to the pass and it tried to go out. I'm like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? But like, there's, there's a level of understanding what what I had to learn very quickly was understanding what leadership meant and what holding people accountable meant and what, where you could give that pushback. So you never obviously, um, demean anyone personally, you question why they decided to put a a raw burger, but like you never call (laughs) someone stupid. I will never say anything mean about you as a person. Um, I will be tough and I will hold you accountable for your actions, uh, and ask a lot of you in the form of high standards, Um, but the toxic kitchens that we talk about are the toxic, toxic places are the ones that, you know, demean people and make people feel less than, which is not, which is not okay. Yeah. You, in the sports world, you see a lot of coaches who behave in a way where it's the ad hominem attack to the, to, you know, if it's college or high school to the kids, 
versus trying to to grow them. And I think I, we had there was this line I read where it was basically saying like a great coach, and in this case, it might be like the, a great chef shoots arrows at people's feet to make them dance, but they never shoot the arrow at their heart. Mm-hmm. And I love that, yeah. So like that, that kind of made me think of that when you're like, okay, you know, you, you, you can't just not shoot arrows at all because then they, they're not, right. you, you don't get better, but you just have to be careful where you, you aim them. Um, a hundred percent. And so speaking of being in a kitchen it, with Arlo Gray and everything that's happened in the last six months, like what, what, how, how has that been, and what have you learned? And I, yeah, oh, sorry. I, I, I wanted to ask we'll that go too. With like a with, three prong question. Well, no, it's the same thing. It's just with Arlo Gray being away from it. What do you miss? But also, mm. assuming the world does go back to normal someday, yeah. like what have you learned from this that you're going to take back into it? You know, our, Arlo Gray is. I, Every, like, I never have wanted a restaurant. It was never part of my plan. I was doing just fine doing what I was doing. And I was, in a lot of ways, succeeding in all of those areas. And so when the whole restaurant thing came up, I was like, well, it's got to be a really good thing. Like, it's got to feel really good. And when it did, I was going to give it a thousand percent of my energy and who I am. And so everything Arlo Gray that, that, that I still get pictures from people on property and I see this empty restaurant and like, Mm. they still every day put up my book and they put up a sign that says, we'll be back with you soon or something like that. And every day they go, they, they do it. And it's really a, a, a really touching thing. Um, and it breaks my heart. It really does. I mean, I literally, when we had to tell our team that everyone was getting basically furloughed and then eventually laid off because this pandemic basically uh, went on longer than I think anyone has really expected. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I, I literally, I just bawled. I like after the call, cause I had called in, I was in New York. I wasn't even in Austin to look at them in their face, but I'm on the call with HR and everyone. And I got off the call and I just literally sat on the couch and I just cried. It, it was, God, it's, it's so hard because those people, everyone, whether you've worked there for two months, whether you were just a stage, whether whether or not you got fired, I don't really care. At the end of the day, everyone that has come through that restaurant has left has left their place and left their mark and have, has left a space for us to figure out how to grow and become better. Um, you know, with the team that was let go uh, in March, we still keep in touch, which is the saving grace of all of it. Because at the end of the day, the restaurant is a restaurant. And of course, we want to feed people. But I, I have, um, I have a connection and a feeling for the people and the people that made it. So I stay in touch with them. We talk, I support all their side hustles. Like I just, I want them to do good and be good and be healthy and be safe and fight the good fight and, um, whatever I can do to be that person for them. You know, I told them in the email after they all, you know, we had to make that news is, um, that I said, my commitment to you is not over just because we don't have a restaurant to be in together. Yeah. And so that will stand forever and ever and ever and ever so long as they want it and accept it. So, um, you know, we are fortunately in talks right now to determine when it's safe to come back. And we have a couple of dates that are kind of penciled in um, and we're working towards those. So pending how everything shakes out and how numbers can go down and how we can, you know, do it in a safe manner. Arlo Gray is going to come back in a slightly modified version of what it was when we when we closed. But the story and the heart and the people who who lend their talents um, will still be there. Mm-hmm. And we keep us posted because I will. We will definitely be getting on a plane. I to mean, come I to Austin. that's one of those things that I, I, <laughs> I will bu- I will bubble wrap myself yeah. if it means <laughs> we can go to Arlo Gray and then wake up and go get yummy breakfast tacos. <laughs> yes, we got you covered. We got you. I will certainly let you know. You are yeah. you are you will be the first person I let hmm. let know. So for for people who have your cookbook or who have just listened to this interview and have already ordered it while they're listening to this, what do you have a singular favorite recipe in the book or or a recipe that you would tell people like, hey, start with this? Oh, man, I think we we personally so, have an answer to yeah. that, but I want to know what yours yeah, is. Okay. <laughs> 
Well, and that's, and that, and that typically is my answer. It's like, so in the head notes I did for a, a good amount of them, like a little point of inspiration, like tried to take you back to where it came from or what I was thinking when, you know, it was created. Um, and for me, the most successful food and the, the dishes that I love the most are the ones that people find value and comfort in. Mm-hmm. So whatever that may be, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't cook for me. I cook obviously to fill, fulfill a large part of me, but I don't cook the food to give it to myself. I cook it to give to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it just makes me, it makes me so happy when I see people posting pictures of like, whether it be, you know, the simplest dish in the book of like braised baby potatoes or the ribeye with like leek fritters that is reminiscent of leek and, or, you know, onion rings and steak or, um, the champignon sauce, which is derived from mm-hmm. the time on top chef and the mushrooms. So it, it really, I'm just thrilled. I'm thrilled and I'm shocked and surprised every single time someone says that either they got it or they've come to the restaurant or they watch the TV show or whatever. It's just, it's mind blowing to me every single time. Um, I guess that people care before for, for what I'm doing yeah. <laughs> before the, the ultimate question. So I guess this is the penultimate question. Can you take me through your thought process when you decide, is it a backward hat day or not a backward hat day? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yes. Uh, 1000%. Okay. 95% of my life is a backward hat day. Mm, 1000%. Yes. But it's gotta be flat brim snapback. Like this is the only thing that looks good on my, on my head. If I turn that hat around, I look like a child, even more so than I do with a backwards hat. (laughs) I look like a little kid, like going to basketball camp. Um, so like I, it's typically that because I also, I just don't want to do my hair all the time. And especially with my, you know, airplanes and kitchens and things like that, I just throw on a hat and it's simple. The only time I really do my hair is if there's like a photo shoot or like an in-person interview where I really have to like step it up. But other than that, if you don't like me in my hat, I can't help you because mm-hmm. that's probably what you're going to get. Yep. Wow. You two are so simpatico. Kate yeah. is <laughs> definitely a backwards hat, not but, fitted snap. Yeah. The, yes. And yep. the, the flat brim, but I think I wear it. I, I wear the backwards hat less than you do. It's, it's basically when I'm on like day three of don't want to wash my hair. Yeah. And I'm like, I slept on this and this is my solution. And then the next couple of days is backwards hat. And Kristen, every time she does it, she's so cute too. Cause she'll look at me and be like, I look cute in a backwards hat. Don't I, I do. I, I do cute. think I look cute. I do. You know what it does? I will say most of the time I like my face shape in the hat more because it huh. gives me like a little bit of height on top of my head that mm-hmm. my hair also does, but just in a different way. But it just, the sh- everything about the shape, it makes me feel, <laughs> it makes me feel tight. Yeah. It really does. And it's stylish yeah. and, it, and it is also conveying like, I don't give a fuck. I'm wearing my backwards yes. hat. I got exactly. some confidence. So like, I love all of it. So <laughs> I am, I am, I'm guilty of putting in a lot of effort not to yes. look like I put in any effort. Yes. yes. Aren't 100%. we all though? Yes. Well, okay. There's and a lot of thought. I don't want to leave the people hanging because our favorite recipe from your cookbook that we make mm-hmm. on a regular basis now are your cabbage rolls. Yeah. I just need the people yes. to know that the cabbage rolls are everything. We, we vegetarianize them. Yeah. And we do your browned mushrooms and we added, yeah. we do some kale and some rice and it's just, mm. oh God, mm. it is so good. In fact, I think we'll probably be mm. making those this week. Mm. And <laughs> I haven't made them yet because I'm a little intimidated, but maybe you yep. can hold my hand someday. Um, yes. The the custard, the like squash custard, you made it <gasps> when you, yes, yes, I know. When you came yeah. to Charleston and you took over yep. Chez New, you made these, yep. oh my God. It was orgasmic. They were so incredibly good. It I gotta does, tell you, it looks kind of hard though. It looks like yeah. it might be hard. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but it's but it's so. Have you cooked? Have you let's look, we're gonna walk through this for a second. Have you cooked an egg corn squash before? Um, yeah, uh, yes, but I normally like chop it into little slivers and and okay. roast it like that. Okay, so all honestly, all, this is all it is. So the custard mix is that you literally just mix your cold eggs, cold milk, flavoring all together. And you just have this liquid sitting on the side. You don't have to temper it. You don't have to like cook it to nappe. You don't have to do okay. it. Just mix it together into like scrambled egg mix, essentially. And then this squash. So instead of like 10 nice cuts, you have to make one, 
just down the center and open it up. I and can really, do that. <laughs> the only, the only like finicky area of what it is, is like maneuvering your foil after you par cook the squash for like 30 minutes is maneuvering the foil. So your custard sits flat in the cup. That's really the hardest part. And then you pour it in, you throw it in the oven and then that's kind of it. Well, you know what, Kristen, I'm a yogi and I'm really good at balancing things. Perfect. So if you you don't like, this is is made for me. (laughs) Oh my God. Can I tell you something? Really? It's like, so the, the, I'm, I'm, I guess I've always been sort of mindful in like practices, but never to the extent of like what I am trying to be now. Um, I'm starting the like more, I, I, I hate to word, I, I don't want to say yoga because I'm certainly not in that realm of whatever. Um, I'm also not very flexible, but <laughs> I'm starting to learn to actually sit on a yoga mat. Okay. And still, and still. Okay. Which I feel like is a huge, huge move. So, huge move. So would, would you go as far as to call that meditating or do you, I don't know. I'll ask that. Is that meditating? (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like you are on the path. (laughs) I'm trying. And so we started doing these workouts. Um, uh, the class, have you heard of those? Yes. Taryn Toomey. Right. Okay. So Bianca's done like a lot of in person. of them. Yes. I'm, I'm not at the level of where I'm comfortable doing the sound, but it's I'm, weird when you're I, at home. Yeah. Yeah. But like when, at the end, when you sit down on your mat and you literally do like the third eye and then your mouth and then your heart, what, what do you call that? I don't know. Yeah, that's not, med- like that's not like, quite meditating, right? It's is it when, like, when she like does the heart opening thing where her arms are swinging back and forth. Or you oh, just sort of also hold- love that by the yeah. way. But it's, it's the idea of like, that practice of exercise of plus yes yes like t- oh taking God. a moment to feel your heartbeat to observe the energy that you've created instead of just mowing right. forward into the next action of your day or into your next thought yes and that- i just when you said yogi i was like okay well i have no idea if that actually is relatively similar in some aspects but it i is. just feel okay good thanks. it's all in Thank the God. same genre you know you, you're you're gonna be like a hardcore granola eating vegan before you know it Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to learn the um bianca is teaching me how to do oh god it's the move that starts with a v a move that starts with a V. Vinyasa. Oh, vinyasa flow. You're doing vinyasa. Oh, yes. You're definitely doing yoga. Is that yoga. where you like go down on your triceps? It's like a push-up kind it's of. It's a plank yes. and then a push-up and yeah. a down dog. dog and a down dog. Yeah. Yes. So we've been practicing that. Oh, and I, I love it. My, my, goal, my goal is to do five a day to try to get better. You're doing sun salutations, basically. I think that's what she's probably teaching you. That's fantastic. I will be checking in on you now. I will oh my be God. checking in. <laughs> I'll be expecting videos so I can look at your alignment. <laughs> yes. It's so bad because I don't have the strength and all the muscles that that requires, but I'm working on it. Well, okay. So the, the, the final and most important question, which is really a two-part question, but if we, you had to allocate, okay, yeah, go, let's just yeah. open it up to the wide one instead of the specific okay, one. Let's do it. It's because it's embarrassing me at this point. Kristen, my favorite cookie is oatmeal raisin. It turns out that most people think that's a trash cookie. I, <laughs> I got it. Like I, people get real emotional about those raisins. So, mostly then the question is, what is your favorite cookie? Because I don't want to. Can't handle it anymore. We've been asking people if they <laughs> prefer chocolate chip or oatmeal raisin, and it hasn't gone well for me. <laughs> Well, I will say if you were to if you were to ask me chocolate chip or oatmeal raisin, I honestly I would say oatmeal raisin. And I'm not a, and I'm I'm not a huge fan of I'm not a huge fan of raisins, but I am a huge fan of the chew than oatmeal raisin. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is it is texture and I'm not like the biggest chocolate fan. So <laughs> I got to be in a mood. Really? Um, yeah. But if you if you were to ask me what my favorite cookie cookie mm-hmm. is like without any um, choices. Raisins or chocolate say, chips? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to say peanut butter because I okay. love yes. peanut butter. That's a good yeah. choice too. But you won yeah. me over at just hinting that maybe you would have picked oatmeal raisin. Kate's going to do pirouettes and Kate doesn't do pirouettes, but I think she'll be pirouetting <laughs> after this. You wouldn't believe how many memes <laughs> people send me of like the tray at the conference table that's like, the only cookie left is oatmeal raisin. Oh my God. <laughs> and I I'm think like, it's great. 
<laughs> there's nothing not to like about it. Thank minus you. Like if there's too many reasons. Right. But like right. everything from the chew to the structure mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. kind of the idea that it's like old grandma's cookie. Mm-hmm. It's like nostalgic and lovely and <laughs> reminiscent of like happy. I'm and going like to put my backwards hat on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be thinking about you in my backwards hat eating my homo raisin cookie. Kristen Kish says this is classy. Okay. <laughs> it's nostalgic. <laughs> oh. oh my God. Well, we love you and we cannot wait to get back to Arlo Gray. Well, not back to, we can't wait for it to be back so we yes. can go and visit you and eat your delicious food. And everyone, needs to pick up a copy of your amazing cookbook Kristen Kish cooking and um you're fun to follow on Instagram too and maybe patrons we will have a little tutorial on a French omelet which is divine thank you totally and I will I will walk you through the squash oh my god okay yes (gasps) all right okay Okay. I'm fired up I'm fired up okay all right thanks Kristen (laughs) we love you thanks you guys are the best love you guys Bye. bye That'll do it for today's episode of Free Cookies. And if you follow us on Instagram, so that's Free Cookies Podcast on Instagram, as soon as we have the video with Kristen Kish making a French omelet. And if you're like, what is a French omelet compared to a regular omelet? Trust me, you are never going to want to eat a regular plain old omelet ever again once you've had the glossy goodness that is the simplicity of a French omelet. And you will be able to check that out on our Patreon dot com forward slash free cookies and i will post about that on free cookies instagram to let y'all know and if and if you are somebody who scrambles their eggs in the pan once it's already overheat you can email us at free cookies podcast at (laughs) gmail.com and let us know that that's actually a well-known technique no judgment no judgment at all save yourself the bowl and the fork you don't have to clean those things or you can just email us if you have any recommendations for us or you are commiserating with any of the things we have talked about on this podcast. Absolutely. And we are produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio. And this is generally speaking where we would do a little shout out to all of you who have taken the time to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Like a a a a a a Anna Marie, shout out to you. And see what happens if you do rate and review the show. I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about you guys and talking about you guys and and butchering the names that you write under the reviews. But we don't have anyone that we can talk about this week because there's there's no reviews. So what you have to do is you go to Apple Podcasts, give the five-star review, leave the words, and then you will be mentioned and whoever comes up with the show. most creative a name will win the $10,000 bonus that we always give away at the end of every episode. We should probably leave it there, right? If you, well, we're not doing it this episode because there was new, no and new. this is where I say something really fast at the end because there are a lot of things apply. And when I say apply, you're not actually going to get $10,000. But if you're still listening, we really like you. Make sure that you give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Oh, she's an asshole. <laughs>